I'm Carrie Miller, and each week we add a deep track, a book interview from the archives that parallels in some ways the themes of the new discussion. This week, our new author interview is with novelist Jacob Guanzon. It's a story about a young man raising a child alone at the edge of poverty. Jacob's novel, Abundance, reminded us of a conversation we had in July of 2021 with the authors of Love People, Use Things. The authors, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, grew up in poverty and learned to value material wealth over relationships. Their book is the story of their epiphany, their friendship, and their life changes. And I hope you'll find it as enlightening as we did. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Good to have you listening to NPR News. If living a minimalist life sounds like it's about denial, austerity, and hardship, listen on because you're about to be introduced to the joy and the release of minimalism. When our guests, two longtime friends, embraced it, they realized that while it was indeed about clearing the clutter of a life of acquisition— It was really about reordering their relationships to people and things. Joshua Fields Milburn writes in their new book, human connection is missing from our lives and it can't be purchased. It can only be cultivated. To do so, we must simplify, which starts with the stuff and then extends to every aspect of our lives. As our guests join us, I'd like to hear from you. Look around or picture the place you live in. How much of the stuff that fills up that place adds value to your life, true value? What's the first thing you'd give away if you were to lean into this idea of a minimalist life? So I want you to think about how much of the stuff in your house, all those possessions really adds value to your life, everyday value. And then what's the first thing you'd give away if you were to lean into the minimalist life, here's the phone number 651 227 You can tweet in, as many of you are doing, at Carrie, K E R R I M P R. Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus are the minimalists, and their new book is titled Love People, Use Things Because the Opposite Never Works. They're with us from L.A. Guys, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, thanks for having us. Joshua, I think we have to come straight at this argument that you're making that having stuff, a lot of stuff, it, it, it not only obscures the ability to prioritize relationships, it distracts from, it actually inhibits our ability to, to do that. So I guess I want to ask you, What makes you think that most of us can't put our stuff in its proper place and focus on what's meaningful? Why does the stuff get in the middle of that? You're right. It doesn't have to, right? The problem is in our culture, we're steeped in stuff. The average American household has 300,000 items in it. That's mind-blowing. I know, right? But it, it would be great if it brought us more joy and contentment and tranquility and equanimity. But it's often doing the opposite. We know this. We often buy things because we think it's going to make us happy. But the objects of our desire quickly become 
the objects of our discontent as we amass them in our closets and basements and attics and second bedrooms and our cars and offices. <laughs> we have a lot of stuff. And, and so the problem with the stuff is our material possessions are are merely a, a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So a lot of clutter in your home, well, there's a good chance if you're anything like I was, a lot of psychological clutter is there or mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, relationship clutter, career clutter. We have a lot of clutter in our lives and it manifests outwardly in things. And so the argument from the minimalists is that we look at our stuff as a starting point. No, getting rid of all of your stuff is not going to instantly make you happy or joyous, but it is going to make some space. It's going to make you feel freer and lighter as soon as you start letting go of the excess stuff, but it really makes the space to start asking some deeper, more profound questions. Questions like, why did I give so much meaning to all these material possessions? You know, what is truly important in my life? Uh, why have I been so discontented? Who's the person I want to become, Right. So, so Ryan, I, I thought, I thought what Jesse Jacobs, he's the entrepreneur, I think, who shows up in the, in the Netflix documentary about you guys. He says, I've thought about this a lot. It's human to be dissatisfied. And I, I get the sense that what he's speaking to and what you two are speaking to is just this nagging sense of unfulfillment and how we've mm. become so accustomed of to putting stuff in there, thinking that's going to fill, you know, fill that unfulfillment. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very accurate statement. I think, you know, there's something that has happened with evolution that, that just puts that, that feeling in our DNA. I mean, you know, you think about the post-industrial age that happened less than a hundred years ago. And before that, I mean, we were very much in a hunter gatherer, type mindset. We, we um, actually needed to own stuff. We didn't have as much access as we have now. And you fast forward to today and you know, we have not evolved past that. Uh, and that's okay. Um, we're just beginning to recognize that we have these impulses. And then you, you, so you mix that, that, in, that natural impulse of humanity with the 5,000 advertisements that, that people see every day in the United States, which is over a million a year. And that really seeps in subconsciously. And then you add status into some of these things, right? Especially in the ads, it shows us, hey, you could have a higher status. You could be on a higher pedestal if you owned our thing. So they're presenting a problem. The advertisers, they're presenting a problem. And guess who has the solution? <laughs> it's the corporation <laughs> that is advertising the problem. So, so you know, I, I think this desire that we have, it's very good, actually, I can really um, appreciate it. I mean, this is why we went to the moon. This is why we've advanced technologically. Uh, this is why we have come so far. It is because this this need to grow. Uh, the problem, I think, today, and that, and that Josh and I had to face, and I still face it, by the way, is that the stuff looks like a shortcut. It looks like a very mm -hmm. easy solution to fill that desire to grow. And what Josh and I did with this book, Love People Use Things, is, is I think we did a, a really good job of showing people how they can grow responsibly without filling their homes with a bunch of stuff. Josh and I, we are not against stuff. I mean, we all consume. I'm drinking a glass of water right now. We're talking on a microphone. I mean, there are absolutely things that we have to bring into our lives. The problem is this compulsory consumption. This is where... It's, it's really getting 
out of control. Kurt says on Twitter, we went from a 3,500 square foot, four bedroom, double attached garage to less than 600 square feet. First went the house, next most of our stuff. Never been happier. Let me take a call here from Sandy in Watertown. Hi, Sandy. What are you interested in? And are you, are you thinking more minimalist these days? You know, I've actually read an article on these guys, and we have tried to downsize. We just moved out of a 3,200-square-foot house into a 1,200-square-foot townhouse. And I found getting rid of the big stuff to be really easy. It mm-hmm. was small stuff. It was the six totes full of photo albums and the boxes full of journals since I was in high school. (laughs) I mean, that's it. We have a storage unit. (laughs) Do you? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For that kind of stuff. So that was my question for these guys is if you're not willing to part with the memories, even though I don't look at my old journals, right, every day, I can't imagine throwing them away. I was just curious if you had any suggestions for that. Good. Josh, what do you think? Our memories aren't in our things. Our, our, our memories are inside us. And I, I think, unfortunately, we conflate the things. You know, we, we add sentiment to the things. None of our things are inherently sentimental. Now, we can have some sentimental things, some, some things that mean something to us. I dealt with this, and I talk about it in the book. When I was dealing with my mom's stuff, my mom passed away when I was 29 years old, and it made me start to question everything in my life, my so-called success and achievement and, and all the things I brought into my life because I was dealing with her things first. And I was faced with tens of thousands of sentimental items, you know, just all of these things that I had imparted sentiment to. Of course, if I tried to give them to her neighbor, they wouldn't be sentimental to that person. And what I realized, like, oh, wait a minute, I could still have the memories of my mother and all the amazing times that we had. And oh, by the way, by getting rid of many of her sentimental items, I actually get far more value from the few sentimental items I kept. Because letting go is not something you do. We often think about letting go as simply decluttering or whatever, letting go of our things. Letting go is something you stop doing. You stop pretending that everything is precious. You stop clinging to the excess material possessions and you know, toxic relationships even. You stop acting like busy is a good thing, right? For me, that's the, the most dangerous four-letter word in the English language. Uh, busy, busy, busy. We're all so busy. We, and we stop posturing as though our achievements make us who we are because you could let go of the things. You could throw all your stuff in a dumpster and be utterly miserable, right? Because it's really about the attachment to those things. And so how do we let go of the attachment when we really understand what adds value to our life? As a minimalist, everything I own serves a purpose or it brings me joy. And all the excess stuff, the the junk really, is out of the way. Carrie, the one thing I want to add here is, you know, with with our things, you can absolutely have a memory triggered by a thing. So, you know, for, for me, like I had some letters from my mother in high school that she sent me. Uh, she was living in Florida. I was living in Ohio. And I remember uh, when I was kind of going through my minimalist experiment, I came across th- this box of letters. And as I started, you know, looking at them, I had all these memories start rushing back. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember she sent me this and it meant so much to me. And what was interesting was I actually like pulled one of them out and read the letter 
And what's weird is the memory of the letter was much better than the experience of rereading the letter. (laughs) So so that was kind of like a first signal to me uh, that, hey, maybe I could I could let this go. So um, I took a I laid it out on the counter. I took a picture of it with my phone and then I put it in the trash and I thought, you know, if I can't sleep, I'll get up in the morning. I'll pull it out. No big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I didn't even think about it. You know, I didn't think about it the next day or the day after that. But I still have, you know, a a picture of that that sentimental thing. So Mm -hmm. certainly things can trigger memories, but we don't necessarily have to hold on to them to trigger those memories. This is a conversation about reordering our relationship to people and things. And it includes, you know, the idea of less things, fewer possessions, more emphasis on the relationships that really matter. This is something that uh, two lifelong friends, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, have embraced as the minimalists. I have to say, I recommend the Netflix documentary. I went into this a little skeptical. I came out a believer from the documentary. (laughs) So uh, these guys really do seem like the real thing. So um, I'd like you to think, think about the place in which you live, Maybe you have a storage facility to look around how much of the stuff that fills up those places really adds value, you know, high priority value to your life. What's the first thing that you'd give away if you were to lean in to the minimalist life? If you were to embrace the idea of this, what's the first thing that would have to go? Somebody tweeted earlier about books. Oh boy, that might be where I draw the line. And then again, <laughs> there sit my bookshelves with tons of books that I've already read and probably never will read again. And somebody else should be reading them. So yeah, I'm facing this too. So what's it mean for you in your life and where you live? 651-227-6000. What's the first thing that would go that would make you feel freer, lighter, 800-242-2828. Tweet in at Carrie NPR. Troy says, my wife and I plan to live in a small RV soon. We'll be forced to live minimally. All I'm bringing is my laptop phone, some clothes, and my guitar. Here's Ricky. Donate all books and start over with an e-reader. Let's be honest. A lot of us have bookshelves full of books that we will never read I'm first on that list. To the phones to Daniel in Delray Beach, Florida. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Glad you called. How are you thinking about this? Hi. Um, I, I'm a collector. Um, you said the, the thing that would free you. I was going to say my yeah. dishes because most of my stuff is like a 20,000 vinyl record and music equipment, tools, like a car and, you know, and antique lamps and you know <laughs> oh, stuff and, and then i've been selling on ebay so you know i'll sell the extra records I get. so stuff can make you money and my friend actually died recently as a his uncle is ted grossman a steward mm-hmm. and uh i kind of envied him because he was he was a guitar player a friend of mine he was he stay on my couch and um i kind of envied he could live out of a backpack Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. When I have to move, I got to move. Daniel, I hear you on this vinyl records thing. My husband has a huge collection, and we've started talking about when are you going to pare that down. So, Ryan, that's where the the rubber really hits, meets the road Mm. here. When you start to have to assess 
how much pleasure it gives you to look around at a, at a thousand record collection versus how would my life change if I wasn't hanging on to this stuff? So tell me how you think about that. Yeah. Well, you know, first off, I want to tell Daniel, like, you know, we, the minimalists, we don't judge. We only relate. I mean, I was a collector of things too. Um, probably not as nice and, and tidy of a collection as Daniel, but, uh, you know, I have my own collections going on. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to really determine, do our things serve a purpose or do they bring us joy? And you mentioned books earlier. And, yeah. you know, and I talk about this in our documentary, Minimalism. Someone, you know, they come to our event and they say, hey, you know, I, I, I'm a minimalist, but I'm really getting, I'm having trouble getting past these books because, you know, I really, I really enjoy the experience of reading my books, the way the pages smell. I, I sit in my favorite chair and I, I lose <laughs> myself. And then I have friends come over and you know, I give them books and they borrow them, they read them, they come back. We have, we have these meaningful conversations about the book they read. And to that, I say, hey, keep your books. It sounds like you get a lot of value mm -hmm. from those books. Now, if I was a collector of things uh, like Daniel was, I mean, personally, I would just go out of my way to set up some boundaries to make sure that those things weren't overwhelming me. And, and it, to me, it didn't sound like Daniel was too overwhelmed with these things. But, but if someone is feeling overwhelmed, that is a signifier, that, that is a symptom of yeah, maybe, maybe there has to be some boundaries set up. So in our book, Love People Use Things, we talk about, the, uh, we talk about 16 different rules. One of them is, is called the seasonality rule. And what we do is uh, this rule says you can pick up any item in your house. You can look at it and you can say, have I used this in the last 90 days? Or am I going to use this in the next 90 days? And if the answer is no to both of those questions, then Josh and I, uh, we've decided to give ourselves permission to let things go. Now, the beautiful thing about these rules is that you can totally edit these to fit your life. Maybe for someone else, it's the 120-120 rule, whatever it is. But if someone is experiencing some, some discontent, if they're, if they're feeling overwhelmed by their things, I, I think uh, any of those 16 rules can help people filter through all that stuff. Candy says on Twitter, this is so important. If the purging is left to do on the heels of an emergency or the death of an aging parent, the emotional toll is heavy on the person purging the items. I had to do this for my in-laws and make decisions on hundreds of items that weren't mine. To the phones to Chris in Stillwater. Chris, it sounds like you've had some experience Hi. with this. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, well, our experience was uh, forced on us. We had a house fire that uh, pretty well took out the, you know, everything we owned. And so after we, we had read the book and uh, it had a, a big impact on how we thought about what do we want to own again? I mean, now we get to start over and uh, we are guilty, like everybody, of tons of clutter and 15 things that you only need one of. And so as we began to like look at what do we need in our kitchen, we got rid of, we never repurchased all the things that were the one trick kind of tools and just went wow. back to all the basics and have tried to keep our home, you know, sort of using the book as a guideline, um, clutter free. And we love the open space that, you know, that we have now. So Boy, Chris, I'm not what sure a... that, you know, we would have been able to do this without the fire as successfully as we were and it kind of did the heavy lifting for us. 
I mean, what a traumatic experience. And yet, it sounds like you've emerged from it with, you know, a different value system. Joshua, tell me what you hear in Chris's experience. First off, Chris, um, go ponies. My wife's from Stillwater, so um, I'm very familiar with the area. Um, But let's talk about the stuff. We can get serious for a second here. Because we, well, uh, we, we give so much meaning to the things and why do we do that because we're so attached right there's a story in in the new book where there's a couple who are actually from minnesota uh, as well and they they saw our film they started simplifying their lives they started letting go of the excess stuff and as they're doing they rent this giant dumpster and they throw all their stuff in it the last day it's getting ready to get removed their whole house is on fire because of the dumpster catches fire they don't know how and they lose everything right and and but they didn't lose everything they still had everything that was important and this sort of gave them that perspective had this fire happened two months earlier i think it would have been far more devastating and 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 the emotional loss would would have been so much greater but they realized they still had their kids they still had their pets they still had their love they had themselves and all of the things were replaceable and yes, it's a huge inconvenience. If you set my house on fire right now, I'm not going to be very happy about it, right? But I'm not going to be devastated by losing the things because minimalism is really the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things, which aren't things, physical things at all. To Stephen in Hudson, Wisconsin. Hi, Stephen. Glad you called. Hi, thanks for taking my call today. We have a good cell connection in that area. Yeah. But um, one of the things I wanted to mention is a strategy that, that we've been using. So my wife is a, her parent lost her parents at a pretty early age. They were Swedish immigrants, and we had a house completely full of generations worth of trinkets and, and stuff. And wow. she has a very hard time letting go. And she had the earlier caller who was mentioning the sort of um, the journals and the storage unit. I think one of the fears my wife has is that if she loses these things that maybe sat in her kitchen growing up or that were for parents' items, that she will also lose that memory because that item isn't there to trigger that. So one of the things that we've used as a strategy is sort of a, a digital archiving strategy, which is to look at an item and take a picture, and that allows us the ability to sort of meta-tag that in Google Photos with a comment, something that would get lost if you transferred it from generation to generation. Um, and, and then get rid of the item itself. And the second thing I was going to mention is that, um, you know, we're aging. And one of the things that I'm, I'm feeling more and more anxious about is as we age, I do not want to leave hundreds of thousands of items to our kids to have to deal with when we pass that, that really will hold not a lot of meaning. So that was just a comment about a digital strategy um, for Items that you feel strongly about but hold no value, no, no monetary value, a, a way to um, to save those sort of uh, in perpetuity without without losing the item itself. So, Boy, I love the um, idea of that, Stephen. Yeah, Joshua, so Ryan, um, yeah, you, you, you've both you know been through this, right? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, my, my favorite part of our podcast, the Minimalist Podcast, is people call in with a lot of tips like this. And so I've learned different ways to simplify my own life through our listeners, whether it's you know our live events, people will come up and, and, and they'll share anecdotes or they'll, they'll share stories or different versions of, of things that we've done and they've applied it to their own lives. And it's given me the opportunity to 
to figure out the best ways to simplify my life. I wish it was as simple as here are the hundred things you should own and then you're going to be happy. Or here are the 16 rules for living with less that we have in our book. If you just apply all of these to your life, now all of a sudden your life is complete. Well, of course, that's that's not the case. These rules are malleable. Our understanding of simplifying is different for each person because here's the truth. The things that add value to my life may not add value to yours and vice versa. In fact, the things that added value to my life a decade ago may not add value today. So I have to constantly question, is this thing adding value to my life? And if not, I give myself permission to let go. Joshua Fields, Milburn, Ryan Nicodemus are the minimalists. And we're talking about their new book, Love People, use things because the opposite never works. Uh, and this is a question for you is, as you listen to our discussion develop, have you begun this process? And maybe it was through the loss of a parent where you went into their home and you had to make decisions about what to give away and what to keep, or maybe you've had a kind of traumatic event like a fire and you've had to decide What's coming into your life after you've lost a lot of things? Or maybe you've never begun the process and you're looking around and saying, boy, I thought this had a lot of value. I thought this collection, I thought these things had a lot of value. But now as I look at it through this lens, maybe not so much. Talk to us this morning about your experience with that. 651-227-6000-800-242-222. 2828. One thing I want to get to after news is along with the work that uh, Joshua and Ryan are doing together, they're also modeling male friendship. I want to talk about that too, because I think that's an interesting element to what they're doing. Joshua, I, I want to note here that there is a memoir sensibility to the book, as well as a lot of practical tips here. And I think you bring some things out into the light that you admit in the book you feel some shame about. And you write at one point, I had been lying to myself for years. I wanted it to stop. Unconsciously, I wanted to shatter the whole thing. So you're also Mm. talking there about how your moral compass got distorted. And that wasn't only about having too many possessions, but, but that was a part of it. Characterize how you were feeling about you know, your own moral compass and then the way you were leading your life. I think we all deal with a lot of shame. You know, the the original first line of the book, the publisher advised against this. They didn't want everyone to hate me at the uh, on the first page. But the, the line's still in the book. It's just later in the book. Uh, but the original first line was, uh, I cheated on my wife the day after my mother died of cancer. And you know what? I, I'm that's a lesson from, from the past. There's a lot of other things in this book as well that Ryan and I have never talked about, not just infidelity, but uh, getting arrested, theft, alcohol, drug abuse, um, ending up in an insane asylum for a week. I mean, there, there are quite a few things in, in this book that we have never talked about before, but why did we talk about it? Well, I think because here's the thing. We felt a lot of shame and we've met so many people at like our live events, for example. We, we go out and do these, these tour stops all across the, the U.S. and Canada, and we talk to a lot of people. And the shame manifests in, in strange ways, and we really try to cover it up 
with a lot of clutter. Now, sometimes it's literal clutter, physical clutter. The, we buy things to sort of pacify ourselves, and that's certainly what Ryan and I did. But we, we clutter our lives with lies as well. And so one of the chapters in the book is about our relationship with the truth. We're lying to other people, mainly because we're lying to ourselves. If I just tell them this, or if I shape my narrative this way, then this person's going to like me more. Well, they're not even going to like me. They're going to like some idealized version that I'm projecting onto the world. It's playing a character in a way. And what Ryan and I wanted to do was get some of these these truths out onto the page. We sort of cut ourselves open head to toe and let our, our guts spill out into this book <laughs> in a way. Not in a way that is, uh, woe is me or look at me, but hey, we realize that you're going through some things as well you might be ashamed of. And that shame is not going to help us move forward. It's a sign that we can, uh, we can do better in the future. Our past is just an ancestor who birthed us, but we don't have to live there. You know, I, th- Ryan, I think also. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, the, 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 we have this thing in in the world where we want to put people on a pedestal, our athletes, our, our politicians, our bosses, you know, whoever whoever it is. We, we kind of have these very high expectations of of people in life. And, and what Josh and I wanted to do was not put ourselves on pedestals. We wanted to show how you know we make mistakes too. And it you know it turns out the majority of the people in the world they make. Uh, they, they make mistakes as well. And, and we thought we could tell a better story and help people uh, move forward in their lives better by kind of exposing the, the things that we've been through. Uh, you know, if, to me, I would rather see someone who messed up, learned from it, and then moved on in, in a meaningful way. And, and I think Josh and I were able to tell that, that story in the book. Ryan, I also want to say that as I read the book and I watched the the documentary, I thought about how you two exemplify a kind of different male friendship than the one that our culture tells us male friendship looks like. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you two have ever talked about what your, you know, you're not you're not evangelizing about this, but you're you're showing, I think, a different kind of character of male friendship. And I wondered if you two have ever mm. talked about that. You know, I don't know if we have. The, the fact that you've made that observation, though, I, that's really, uh, it's a huge compliment. I'm, I'm glad that we can, we can model that for folks. You know, I mean, Josh and I, we've known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. And we have been through a lot together. And I think the fact that we have gone out of our way to respect one another, to uh, understand one another, to, to love one another. Uh, I think that's what really creates a great friendship and, and a great business partnership. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an incredible observation. I've never thought of it that way. But, uh, but yeah, you know, we, we do what we can. We do what we can. <laughs> Josh, do you want to reflect on that for a minute? Yeah, you know, I think in, in our culture, we have a problem with uh, masculine love in a way. Like, in fact, mm-hmm. to love is not is not perceived to be masculine. It, it, the, the whole title of the book, Love People Use Things, I mean, we are often doing the opposite, right? We are, what, we're using people to get what we want. It's Machiavellianism. And then we are loving our things. It's, it's a weird sort of language problem in a way, right? Like, I can say I love my wife, but I also love burritos. Or you know, I love my best friend Ryan, um, but I, I also love the new Andrew Bell album. Like it, 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 it one is it means like this deep 
affection the, 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 or devotion even, the bottomless devotion. The other is like a extreme like. It, it's a, a preference or fondness for something that you enjoy, right? It, uh, up in uh, Canada, in the Nunavut region, they have 53 words in, in the Inuit dialect for, the, for snow. So 53 different mm-hmm. ways to describe snow. We have one word for love. It's love. And we stretch it to apply to everything from you know, people and pickup trucks to you know, uh, friends and, and, and fried chicken, right? Uh, we love our Louis Vuitton bags, right? Um, but when you extend any, anything beyond its natural limits, it, it loses its strength. And so I think what we've gotten confused with is, is love. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. And I think that's the reason that Ryan's and my relationship has lasted for 30 years. You know, we're, we're both 40 this year. And we've known each other since we were 10 is because we don't try to change one another. We see them, like actually see them for who they are, not the person that we wished they were. Let me go back to the phones to Melanie in Minneapolis. Melanie, thanks so much for waiting. I'm glad you did. What do you want to tell us? Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Yeah. Wow. Hi. This you're you're speaking so deeply to my soul today. Um, I so I love my parents. Um, I grew up in a home where they were both hoarders, organized hoarders. The house looked fine on the inside, just until you opened cabinets or doors or closets, and that caused me great anxiety as a child. I know um, I get well. I don't know for sure, but from my experience and from my own therapy. I've come to understand that my mother's love language was things, stuff. Mm -hmm. We we did not have a lot of money. She didn't have a lot of money when she was a kid. I think she wanted to provide stuff to her kids. And I just wanted time with her. I didn't want stuff. And the older I get, the more I feel that, the deeper I feel that. Um, When they sold their home that I grew up in, my, my stepdad, drive semi. And instead of downsizing, they took semi truck after semi truck of their stuff to their new home on a farm and filled Mm -hmm. like two barns with all of their stuff. And my mother spends every weekend with a yard sale sign trying Mm -hmm. to sell that. And like growing up, we'd have a yard sale every summer. It was like the towns, like they knew our yard sale because it was bigger every year than it was the year before. And so now she's got two barns full of stuff and she's like prisoner to her belongings. And now as an adult myself, I'm like super minimalist and like working in therapy to get over the fact that clutter and stuff and disorder causes me like anxiety and stress and I can't focus on anything. And I know that that is like so deeply ingrained in this problem of stuff. And I don't blame my parents. Truly, I blame capitalism. But <laughs> like, oh, it's just such a, such a toxic, deep issue. But yeah, Melanie, wow. I, I, w- I was wondering what the effect was of your parents' relationship with possessions, what it was on you. Joshua, the question that comes to my mind is, is there any way you know, I hear Melanie saying her mother is a prisoner to this stuff. So is there a loving intervention, you know, that Melanie could employ to help, help her parents with this? 
We've built some really beautiful prison cells, but we are still locked up. We're inmates to consumerism, right? And, and I only identify here. My basement was like an advertisement for the container store. You just had all of these <laughs> opaque plastic bins and uh, they were stacked and labeled very neatly. I think that what she said was organized hoarding, right? In fact, I, I, I would say that organizing is just well-planned hoarding, <laughs> you know, it, right? Huh. And so um, the, the thing that I'll say here is, uh, well, no matter how organized you are, you're still forced to care for every possession that you store, whether it's in your basement or bins or, or in two giant barns, right? It, you, you are forced to deal with this stuff. So the easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of most of it. Now, you talk about intervening. Well, mm-hmm. what, does that, what does that mean to intervene with someone? We don't want to convince anyone. Ryan and I aren't on a mission to convince you. To convince someone is not loving. However, sometimes we can ask questions. And the question that we start our book with is, how might your life be better with less? And that question is so powerful because, well, it, it's a, a why question that is disguised as a how question. We're, we're so smitten with how-tos. We all want the, the 67 ways to declutter our closet, right? But if I share with you a video or a book that here are the seven ways to tidy up your home or whatever, is that really going to help you? Is your problem a shortage of decluttering tips or do you actually know how to declutter your closet? No, the, the problem is the, the attachment to stuff. So if you want to simplify what, what's important, understanding the benefits, how might your life be better with less? Now, the answer is going to be different for you than it is for me. For someone, it may just be, oh, you know what? My house would be a little bit cleaner and I'm not going to have to spend as much time cleaning every single weekend. For someone else, it's, oh, I'm going to regain control of my finances. I have too much debt. And really, the new American dream is to be debt-free. Or for someone else, maybe it's, oh, I'm going to have more time with my kids and my, my spouse that I didn't have before because I was so caught up in a lifestyle that tethered me to working 70 or 80 hours a week to buy a bunch of things that I don't need with money I don't have to impress people I don't even like. Call from Lynn in St. Paul. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Good to have you on the call. What do you want to say? Yeah, I, I, first of all, this is the first time I've ever called in, and I love the conversation because oh, I have gone through the minimalist kind of um, uh, option of how to live. But when it came to things that um, my parents and my great-grandparents and my grandparents, I mean, there are things my parents did not throw away that I have the good fortune. I have pictures that are well over 100 years old that I've preserved and been able to find letters and things of relatives, a, a recipe for a jello <laughs> recipe from my great aunts exchanging letters. And I get what you're saying, but there's a genealogical kind of component. And that's my only component, uh, the only thing I wanted to kind of say and hear what you have to say. Yeah, Ryan, again, you guys mm. are not saying give it all away, throw it out, things that are even meaningful to you, get rid. You are not here to say that. I just, I want people to be clear about that. Of course not. In fact, you know, as Lynn's talking there, like it kind of warms my heart. That sounds really cool. Like to have these old pictures and to have this old recipe from her grandmother. Uh, My wife, she's got some pictures of her grandparents. It's like two or three pictures, but uh, we have them on display. And um, I've got a 
personally, I have a sentimental thing for my my grandmother, my Oma. She was born and raised in Germany. Uh, she bought me a Stein one year when she was over there, brought it back, gave it to me, and I really enjoy that thing. I uh, I keep changing it. It's it's functional and it's beautiful. So yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like Lynn is overwhelmed by her things, and that is really what Josh and I just want to be very clear on. Like, this isn't about just getting rid of everything. Josh said it earlier. You could run a dumpster and throw everything away and be completely miserable, especially if you don't know why you're getting rid of your things. However, if there's someone listening to this who's feeling overwhelmed, they might be able to benefit from living with, with less things. But yeah, I, I'll tell you, when, when it comes to sentimental items, if everything is sentimental, if, if we have you know, thousands and thousands of sentimental items, well, then really nothing is sentimental at all. I love Josh's story about how when his mother passed away, he went down, he wanted to hold on to everything and he ended up keeping just a few things. And it, it made those things so much more meaningful to him uh, instead of uh, it being watered down with thousands of sentimental items. Josh, I have a kind of impertinent question for you, but it occurred to me uh, as I ended your book, um, you guys, you guys have published books. Now there's a documentary, you do lectures I would imagine that you are both seeing some newfound, if it's not wealth, it's income. And I wonder how minimalists manage, you know, maybe maybe a windfall of mm. income that you hadn't quite expected. How do you do that in a minimalist way that really reflects your values? What a great question. We, we have a whole chapter in the book about money, right? As minimalists, mm-hmm. we're certainly not allergic to money. We're not ascetics or uh, or yeah. monks. So uh, we're certain we don't live a monastic life. In fact, money is is merely a tool. It 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 amplifies behaviors. The problem is Ryan and I grew up really poor, and we thought that the key to our contentment was to go out and get some corporate jobs, work eighty hours a week for the rest of our lives, and all of a sudden, somehow, somewhere, right around the bend, happiness must be there. Of course. It wasn't there with the money, and so it, we tried to find happiness and status and achievement and success. It also wasn't in there. It wasn't in any of these chases. In fact, it's even in the fabric of, of the, our country, right? We hear the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of happiness is the path to our discontent. Happiness can't be pursued. It can't be purchased. It can merely be uncovered. There's a natural state of happiness, of equanimity. You see it in your children, right? When, when we have children, there's this pure joy. They're emanating this joy, not from some sort of accomplishment, but um, eventually we acculturate that out of them. And so Ryan and I certainly aren't allergic to money, but I will tell you this. When I left the corporate world, before I left, I had massive amounts of debt. I made really good money in the corporate world after being really poor growing up. And I thought, well, okay, this money is going to make my life better. But I had massive amounts of debt. Well, why? I made good money, but I spent even better money. In fact, when I worked away from the corporate world, I made uh, $23,000 that first year. So about 90% less than what I was making the year previous to that. And yet, in a weird way, I was more financially secure that year than I had been any year the previous decade. Well, why is that? It's because I was making different decisions. I was being more intentional and I had very, very little money. And so 
I benefited even more from minimalism in, in, in that perspective because I had to be intentional with every dollar because every time we spend $2 on a cup of coffee or whatever it is, in a way, we're, we're sort of parting with $2 of our freedom. And, and so being intentional with our resources is really a part of minimalism. Yes, it starts with the stuff, but what are the other ways in our life that we can be intentional with our time, with our energy, with our money? These are all things that we, we start asking ourselves as we start looking inward. We get beyond the material possessions. You know, Carrie, you said windfall. And what that made me think mm. of is, you know, what, what is it that I truly value? And, you know, I would, uh, before I, you know, kind of go on, I will say that knowing one's values is so important. I mean, when someone asks us, uh, how, or, you know, how do I know I want to be a minimalist? You know, first we will have them ask that question, how might my life be better with less to get to the, the root of why. But then, you know, before they start getting rid of their stuff, we really suggest that people get clear on what their values are. In fact, you can go to uh, theminimalists.com forward slash V as in values. And there's like a worksheet there that, that will help people get clear on what it is they truly value. So part of my values is uh, contributing beyond myself in a meaningful way. So when Josh and I get windfalls, uh, we do give as much as we can. Uh, we we uh, have built schools in Laos Elementary Schools. We have uh, supplied uh, clean drinking water to thousands of people. We have uh, you know, supplied high schools in, in, in different countries with, with supplies that are needed. We just built a, uh, helped build, I should say, a, a food co-op in Dayton, Ohio, which believe it or not, Dayton, Ohio is the west side of Dayton. It's one of the largest food deserts in, in the country. Mm-hmm. So we are able to, to give beyond ourselves in a meaningful way. But you, know, you also asked, like, what is a minimalist's philosophy on money? But the one thing I'll say, a real simple answer is a minimalist spends less money than what they make. And if you apply that equation, that will always work with your finances. Call from Dana in Roseville. Hi, Dana. I know it's been a while. I'm really glad you waited. No, no problem. Thanks for having my call. Um, sure. One of the things that I'm kind of, I, I think this is a great conversation, but one of the things that I find kind of disturbing is that we think getting rid of stuff goes right to the dumpster. And I was couldn't help but think but that dumpster fire might have been a, a piece of electronics with a lithium-ion battery that ignited and or a solvent that was thrown away. And, you know, even though we have these things in our house that we need to get rid of, there are resources too. So I think proper disposal should be emphasized yeah. along with just getting a dumpster and throwing it away. I was in that. Yes. No, I'm really re- glad, Dana. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up. This occurred to me. I'm sure it occurs to a lot of people. Responsible, uh, what, uh, decluttering. So Joshua, yes. what, should we, what should we observe about that? Let's talk about it. We, we, we have this thing on our website, which is called uh, How to Let Go of Possessions. And I'll just give you a quick overview. But basically, it is uh, it, we talk about how our possessions possess us, right? And we want to let go. Well, if it stops adding value, that's really the first question. I hold up any item. Does this add value to my life? If not, I'm going to let it go. Well, I'm going to try to sell it first. If it doesn't sell, mm-hmm. as long as I can, I can garner some money from it. If it doesn't sell in a week, I lower the price. If it doesn't sell in 30 days, I donate it. If the donation place won't accept it, I'll recycle it. And if it can't be recycled as an absolute last resort, then I will trash it. Because once we let go, that's when we're able to move on. Ryan, you want to add anything to that? 
Oh, no. I, yeah, I, th- I think he described the process uh, pretty well. I mean, you know, it's interesting when we took on this this minimalism journey. We didn't do it necessarily for the environmental reasons, but what we've discovered over the last 12 years is that, you know, the less you consume, the less waste you produce. And certainly with, you know, the condition of things going on in the world, it's something that is always on my mind, how to how to uh, be responsible, especially when getting rid of things. I, I will say there are a lot of people who will write into us and they're like, oh, you know, I got all these things and I tried to sell it and I tried to donate it. Um, so I hold on to it and I just can't, I can't stand the thought of putting it in a landfill. I just don't want to, I don't want to do the damage to the, to the environment. And, and what I'll say is as soon as you bought that thing off the shelf, you already damaged the environment. Sitting in your home is, is just clinging to something that, that the damage has already been done with. Now, certainly there are some exceptions with, you know, oil and batteries, right? You want to dispose of those the proper, uh, the proper way. But, but I wouldn't, uh, for anyone listening to this who's getting hung up on doing damage to the environment, I would encourage them to think along those lines. Rosemary says on Twitter, when I can't decide to keep something or let it go, I say to myself, I've enjoyed it long enough. And it works. Guys, I love the conversation. Thanks so much for, for being with us for the hour. Really good to Thanks have you. Thanks for having you. us. Appreciate you, Carrie. Joshua Fields Milburn, Ryan Nicodemus are authors and speakers and longtime friends, and they are the minimalists. Their new book is Love People, Use Things, because the opposite never works.